You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional audio resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Amen. Thank you, Josh. Church family, good to see you this week. Good to see you. I hope you're well. As uh, Logan said at the beginning, glad you're here. If you're a guest among us, I'm really, really thankful that you're with us here this afternoon. My name is Shay Sumlin, one of the pastors here. And I would love for all of us, uh, if you would, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, there in our New Testament, 2 Corinthians 8. We are continuing again in our series called DNA, looking at the mission, vision, and values of Northway Church. And this week, we find ourselves really on week number seven of our values out of 12, and uh, specifically going to look at the value of generosity here at Northway Church, that quite simply put, as a church, we want to cheerfully give of our resources and our time. This is a key value for us this week as we look at this primarily through the lens of 2 Corinthians 8, but we'll look at some other passages. But one of the characteristics and commands that we see most clearly in the scriptures is that of God's people um, being of cheerful generosity, those who've been given much out of the grace of God and now through that same grace want to give that, that generosity away to others, those to fill the needs of those in the church, to fill those of needs in the community, and ultimately to bring glory to God in the process. And here's the deal though, right up front, I know that whenever in a church setting we're going to do a message on giving or generosity, for some there can come with that some, some negative uh, images, some painful images, because probably there's many of us in this room who've come from church past where unfortunately you were used to about every third message being about giving, and every week was another drive-by guilting, another drive-by shaming um, to make you feel bad about how little you give. There are churches we've been a part of that have mishandled finances, that have not been transparent about finances and have uh, gone off course there. There has been others where maybe you're used to the, the common decor of the church is a bunch of thermometers for all the capital campaigns that continue to go before you. Um, we've come from some of those past experiences, and, um, and they can be painful. I remember the very first church I ever belonged to, the very first day that I showed up at church, and I wasn't even a believer at the time, but I was already kind of amused and, and confused by a number of things that the church did, but one is every member had on a button at this church that said, debt-free in 93. Now, one, I've just dated myself, but num secondly, Every member had this button on, like that was the mission statement of the church or something for that year. It's been, we're going to be debt three, not 93. And what's crazy is whatever capital campaign was going on to get out of debt, I mean, it's 2020, and I'm pretty sure that church may still be in debt. I don't think 93 worked, but there is this whole backdrop of, of funds and giving and debt and, and guilt that came along with it. And as a result... From some of those experiences, I would say that a lot of churches, and even I would say the history of ours included here at Northway, have maybe because of that fear, because we so desperately don't want to coerce you to give through guilt, we want to compel one another through grace. And because maybe we fear the former so much, we tend to swing the pendulum the other direction to where we just don't talk about money at all. We don't talk about giving at all. 
I mean, even in this church, if you notice, we don't pass a plate. There's a couple of reasons for that. One, in today's currency, nobody carries cash anymore. We'd have to pass some QR codes or a uh, card reader attached to an iPad. Maybe that's how we'd have to do it. But we also do it just because, again, we want generosity be, to be cheerfully compelled by grace and not one that uh, is manipulated or coerced through guilt. But the tragic part of that is that when we don't speak to this issue, um, we're robbing the, the necessary nutrients that, that Christ intends for his body because at the end of the day, according to the scriptures, the issue of generosity and giving is a discipleship issue. It is a worship issue of the heart, not just the hands. And so here's what I wanna do as we speak to this value. One, I wanna pop this value up a little bit, not just for monetary giving, though that will be included, but I, I wanna pop it up to the value of generosity, of what it looks like just to be a generous church that is always thinking of others and how we can meet the needs of others. But I also want to give just up front a little kind of foundational mini theology 101 on generosity as we see it in the scriptures because there's a lot of misinformation about what generosity looks like in the church. And I wanna look according to the scriptures, what did giving and generosity look like starting in the Old Testament, pre-cross, pre-indwelling of the Holy Spirit? What did giving look like? And what was it expected of God's people in the Old Testament? And then as we bridge into the New Testament, once we go post-cross, post-indwelling of the Spirit, what paradigms do we see shifting in terms of how generosity plays out in the church? So let's start there a little bit. What did it look like in the Old Testament? A lot of times in the Old Testament, uh, many of us, even if you haven't been around church a lot, you'll hear the term tithe. And uh, essentially, that is, that is an old English word that just means tenth. And where we get it from is one of the particular giving commands in the Old Testament commonly known as the Lord's tithe. God, through the Levitical law, expected his people, the Israelites, every one of them, to give 10% of their livestock and their produce to the Levitical priesthood to support the ministry of the priesthood. 10% was there. And unfortunately, though, what we've done is we've kind of over in church culture, we've taken that 10% number and we've kind of drug it into the New Testament and said, yeah, it's a good place to start. Start with 10%. And it can be a good place out of wisdom. But the issue is there's not one single command anywhere in the New Testament about what percentage the church is to give. There's not one. But we get it from this Lord's tithe in the Old Testament. But here's the deal. In the Old Testament, the Lord's tithe, that was just the starting line. Because if you continue to look at what Israel was expected to give as God's people, it actually went up from there. In addition to the Lord's tithe, you also had a festival tithe. That once a year, God's people had to give another 10% to help support the festivals of Israel, the feasts of Israel, to celebrate God's deliverance and bringing them into the promised land. And so you had a Lord's tithe of 10%. You also had a festival tithe of 10%. And then there was another one on top of that called the welfare tithe or the poor tithe, that every three years, Israel was to give another 10% to those who were in need. And so when you, you kind of look at that arc in the Old Testament, it's really nothing about 10%. It's actually, when you boil it down, it came out to about 23.3% every year that the God's people were expected to give. And none of that 
was including even the taxes that were put on the people on top of that. There was a temple tax that God's people had to pay. There was whatever taxes that the reigning uh, government of whatever country was ruling over Israel at the time. So take the Romans that also had their taxes on the people. And what you begin to see, both in the Old Testament all the way into the Gospels, is that yes, there was many people who gave joyfully, who understood that my opportunity to give was simply in response to the amazing grace that our God has given us in liberating us, delivering us, redeeming us. And so it, it's a joy to give, but truthfully, by the time you get to the Gospels, you really begin to see within the culture of Israel, especially in the leadership, that a lot of times giving was a begrudging thing to do. And in fact, more times than not, Jesus is gonna rebuke a number of people for the external facade of giving, giving to, um, to look great or impressive in the eyes of their fellow peers versus a giving that came from the heart. In fact, in Matthew chapter six, Jesus rebukes hypocrites who gave publicly only that they would be noticed and impress their fellow brothers and sisters. In Luke 21, Jesus addresses the wealthy and the rich who chose only to give out of their wealth rather than in proportion to their wealth. That there's a large number of people who wanted to look like they're giving a lot because they're wealthy, but in actuality, we're actually holding more back for themselves. And Jesus calls that out. In fact, you see the epitome of that at the birth of the church in, in uh, Acts chapter five, you see Ananias and Sapphira who try to lie about what it is they were giving. In reality, they were holding a bunch back and came with some pretty significant consequences for them. But nonetheless, you see this addressed over and over. And even Matthew 23, Jesus uh, rebukes the Pharisees, whom Jesus said they made sure that the external cup of their lives looked impressive, but internally they were filled with greed and corruption. It was all about this external thing. And it wasn't about the internal. But then something interesting happens. By the time you get post-cross, you, you get post-indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and you get into the book of Acts, you begin seeing a radical paradigm shift of this community of believers towards generosity, both in the church and through the church. In fact, there's a couple of places. Listen to this as Luke describes what he saw in the early church in Acts chapter 2, verse 44 and 45. Listen to these words. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and their belongings. And they were distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Like think about that for a moment. Luke, who's recording the account of the book of Acts, a 30-year snapshot of the early church and he's describing the key events that formed this church and how the Spirit was moving. This was one of the things under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that Luke felt obligated to record is that this is one of the characteristics of the early church is this was a people who were unselfishly giving of their, their resources so that they could bless those who had need. That what's mine is yours, this, this crazy paradigm shift of generosity, of this giving away. And then in two chapters after that, Luke goes even more detailed when he says this in Acts chapter four. 
Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. And there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of land or houses, they sold them. And they brought the proceeds of what was sold. And they laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Now, that's, I don't know about you, that's crazy. That people are going, oh, you got, you got a need? Well, I don't have much liquid cash, but you know what? I can sell a home. I'll sell my house and I'll take the proceeds and I'm, I'm going to give it here to the church. The church can distribute and we can make sure everybody's needs are met. I mean, that is crazy. Like what would compel somebody to do that, to take what they had? I mean, when you look at that passage, I mean, that sounds like socialism. There's some, there's some presidential candidates that could run with that at a campaign level right there. But here's the difference. What's being described in the book of Acts is not anything that is coerced or manipulated by the government. It was a generosity that was given out of grace. If you notice the center of that passage, Luke records it was the apostles who were giving testimony to the resurrection of Jesus and great grace was upon them all. That's what's fueling them is the grace that they had received in Jesus Christ that was received vertically in their salvation and this amazing grace that was given to them is then extended horizontally to all of a sudden realize, man, I'm not on this earth for long. This isn't about my kingdom anymore. This is about a kingdom that's greater than me. And so anything that I have is gonna be for somebody else. And this amazing generosity kicks in. You're just like, that's unbelievable. What would cause a group of Christians like that to live that way? And I think one of the greatest passages that really helps us to see how this vertical informs the horizontal is 2 Corinthians 8. As powerful as those texts are, look here with me at 2 Corinthians 8. We'll pick up here in verse 1. Let me give you a little bit of context here. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Corinth in Greece. It's a brand new church plant. Had been out there. There's a lot of things going well in the church, and there's a lot of things that are not going well in the church. And Paul writes to them to encourage them and correct them. And one of the areas that Paul is seeking to exhort them is in the area of generosity, that they would be a church that are so compelled by grace that they cannot help but give away to those who are in need. And what he's going to do is he's going to use an example of a cluster of churches that were just north of Corinth, up in Macedonia, the northern part of Greece, and how these churches banded together in really rough circumstances to ensure that the struggling church in Jerusalem that planted them was going to be taken care of. And watch this. Listen to this. We read this earlier, but listen to this verse 1 and following. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. One thing to note real quick. Nowhere in this passage are you going to see the word money. Nowhere are you going to see here of giving of finances. 
It's simply described as the grace of God that's being given. I want you to know about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means. And as I can testify, they gave beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Let's pause right there for a moment. Here's what's going on. The church in Jerusalem struggling. They're in need of financial help. Paul, who's come from ultimately Jerusalem via Antioch, is now out planting these churches. And he's going back through and he's seeking to raise some funds to help take care of the church back at home. And he's gathering money from different churches. But if there was one group of churches that he probably didn't expect to give, it was the churches up in Macedonia. If you're familiar with Acts chapter 16 and 17, there's three primary churches that existed in Macedonia, northern Greece, is the church of Berea. Berea. You also had Philippi and you had Thessalonica. These three churches. And he says they were in a severe test of affliction. Again, if you've read Acts 16 and 17, there was incredible persecution in these churches. I mean, Paul was jailed in Philippi. You get to Thessalonica. I mean, there was an all-out brawl brewing in that place. Paul gets excommunicated, kicked out of there, and forbidden to come back because there was such hostility to the gospel. And imagine being a young church plant under those conditions. You're already a minority in the majority culture. You're impoverished. Funds are light. People are losing jobs because of their faith. Persecution is heading out. And then... Paul, to his surprise, hears these churches band together and go, no, we want to give. Are you kidding me? We, we want to participate. And he said they did, this not of, not of, uh, they did this on their own accord. There was no gun put to their head that made them give. There's no drive-by guiltings. They just simply said, listen, Jerusalem, the gospel came out of there. We're here because of them. Of course we want to give. And so they, in their poverty, they not only give according to their means, they go above and beyond their means because they want to see to it that the church is taken care of back in Jerusalem. It's amazing generosity. And again, you go, what compels somebody to give that graciously in those circumstances? And you see this at the end of the passage. Jump down to verse 7. Paul exhorts the Corinthians. He says, but as you excel in everything, here's where you're killing it, Corinthians, in your faith, in your speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in, even in our love for you, you're thriving in. See to it that you excel in this area as well. What he calls this act of grace, this grace-giving he says, I say this not as a command, not drive by guilting, but simply let this be evidence, proved by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine, that you love the saints so much that you'd be this gracious to give. 
And, and you go, and why? Why would you give this way, Corinthians? Well, it's because of verse 9. Because you know something is the church that not everybody knows. You've tasted something as a church, the people of God, that not everybody in this world has tasted yet. What is it you know? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. And that passage has nothing to do with money and what Jesus did. It's simply the idea that what compels you to give so gracious horizontally is only when you've been so fueled by the grace that you've received vertically, that your debts have been canceled out by Jesus Christ. His substitutionary work on that cross, when he came for you, when you least deserved it. Some of these passages we've looked at in the last couple of weeks, Romans 5, while we were still helpless, while we were still weak, while we were still ungodly, Christ died for us. His generosity at the cross wasn't conditioned upon our meritous behavior. He came for us when we least deserved it. That's when he gave of himself. We also see Philippians 2, what we looked at here last week, the idea that Christ did not consider equality with God as something he had to hold on to, but he emptied himself. He took on the form of flesh, the likeness of human beings. He made himself a bondservant to us all the way to death, even death on a cross. Like his giving was out of grace for us. You who've tasted this grace, how could you not want to go give it away? That's what fuels this kind of generosity here in this passage. And so what we begin to see in this kind of mini theology of generosity is a righted view of Jesus that comes out of his grace towards us on the cross with a yieldedness to the power and the presence and the purpose of the Holy Spirit at work in us should spring forth within us a godly and joyful desire to go give away out of the same grace by which we've been given. Like that's who God's people are to be. And so if indeed that's what generosity looks like is the vertical informing the compelling, the horizontal, but really the question that remains for us is that how should then this play itself out in the church? If this is who we're to be, if it's who we are in Christ, then what does generosity look like here at Northway? I want to share three things. It's common language we've used here before, but I think three categories that categorically summarize what generosity looks like in the scriptures as it comes through our treasures, our time, and our talents. These three areas are where we'll see the grace of God show up in our church through these three mediums. Let's take treasures to begin with. The idea of monetary or material possessions that we have been given by Christ to use for Christ and his kingdom and the good of others around us. But whenever we talk about treasures, one of the first things we always have to start with, if you want to talk about what it means to give generously with your treasures, Theology 101 begins with an understanding that everything that you own, you actually don't own. Everything, the first thing we got to realize is everything that we have in our lives, physically and monetarily, has been put on loan to us by God. He owns it all. 
It's all his. Scriptures speak to this. Psalm 50 says, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. That means I don't care how good of a rancher you are, how many herd of cattle you have, they're God's cattle. It's a euphemism for he owns everything. We see the same thing in Colossians 1, whether the things that are visible or invisible, all of them, everything around you has been created by Christ for Christ. They're all his. We even see in Luke 19, the parable of the Minas, the story that Jesus tells of these resources that are given to his church that belong to him, but are put on loan to his people. And they are called to spend the years that they have on this earth, investing those resources so that there becomes an eternal reward, an eternal dividend on those investments. So that when Christ returns and brings us to an account for them, we have something to show for it. Like this idea they were his put on loan. Hebrews 4 talks about every, every one of us came into this world naked and then we'll also go out of this world naked. Put that in text and translation. We come in naked. We're going to leave naked. Means there's not anything in here that's coming with us other than the word of God and the souls of men. And so therefore, everything that's been put on loan to us in the meantime is to be stewarded towards that end. And so whatever treasures you have, material or monetary, it's all been put on loan to us by God for the sake of building up Christ's church, meeting the needs of the community around us, and displaying his glory to the world. Now, understand, I've said it before, there's not one command in the entire New Testament about a certain percentage of your resources that you're called to give. There's not one command. The only commands in the entire New Testament around giving are twofold. One is that however you give should be done, compelled out of grace. And then secondly, whatever you give should be done with an attitude of joy, cheerful giving. It's the only commands that revolve around it. It's assumed that a graciously received people will be a graciously giving people. It's what's assumed in the scriptures. That's why Paul even goes further to talk about there is an indebtedness that we have when we have had the spiritual invested in us, that we will then take the material that we have in order to support the further working of the spiritual, the eternal. Paul says in Galatians 6 that we're to share all good things with those who've taught us, those who invested into us spiritually. We can take the material and give it back that it might continue forward. Paul says the same thing in Romans 15. If we have shared in the spiritual, then we're indebted to minister back with the physical. It's this idea of taking what we've been given and giving it back so that it'll have eternal dividends. What's really fascinating to me, always has been when it comes to giving, is when you look at the paradigm of generosity at the university level. Here's what I mean by this. How many of y'all graduated from a college or university? Raise your hand, okay, quite a few. When I graduated from the University of North Texas and I walked across that stage, it's not a far stretch to say, but by the time I got home that night, I had a letter in my mailbox from UNT saying, hey, congratulations, glad you did it. Now it's time to give back to your alma mater. You need to start cutting a check. By the way, you know what the word alma mater means? It means foster mother. That's what alma mater means. The idea of this institution that served as a foster parent for you, who poured into you, who gave you resources and training and equipping so that you could go out and be successful. And the understanding is that now that you've become successful, you'll actually give back to mama. 
so that she can continue doing that work for others. That's the idea. And it's interesting because um, U.S. News and World Report, every year they do a, a study on alumni giving at the university level. Last year in 2019, they surveyed 1,900 universities in the United States of America, 1,900 schools. They found that the total sum that was given by alumni for those 1,900 schools was over $12 billion that went back into the schools from alumni that graduated. Do you know which school was at the top of the list in alumni giving? I'm gonna give you a hint, it's not the University of North Texas. It was Princeton University, and they've led the charge for many years in a row. Princeton University, do you know, I want you to think for just a moment, imagine every man or woman that has graduated from Princeton University that's still alive today on this earth. What percentage of all those graduates do you think gave back last year to Princeton? 59%. 59%. They're down from 63% a few years ago. They're slumping. 59% of all alumni that are still living today gave back to Princeton. That's crazy. That is people who go, you know what? I so believe in the institution. I so believe in its mission that I'm indebted to them for what they've given me and I'm given back so that this mission can continue in Princeton University. Now, I know there's some good things that have come out of Princeton, but I don't think it's far of a stretch to say when you think about what God is doing on this earth and of all the institutions that he has chosen to display his manifold wisdom, of his power to save and redeem. He's given that to the church. And the eternal mission that we're on, Princeton can't even hold a candle to. And yet, all the studies show that in the church, the percentage of members that tend to give regularly is around 15%. 15% of all members who give regularly to the church, as you Stack that to 59% of alumni given to Princeton. Like it's, it's mind-boggling to me. And again, what I, what I know about this, and again, this isn't just a, a guilt trip here, but it's just an honest assessment. It's not a pathway issue. It's not that the pathways to giving in and through the church aren't clear. I mean, even at Northway, every church has its own systems. At Northway, we've got a giving box right there by the door that you can't miss when you go out. We've got online portals where you can do automatic giving and everything's set up for you real easy. It's not a pathway issue. It's a priority issue. It's a heart issue. It's a discipleship issue. It's a worship issue. And, and what we... What we see is that folks who struggle to give and those priorities are in different places, they just need a starting place. Some of y'all will go, listen, man, this isn't a hard issue for me. I want to give. I'm just broke. I'm just broke. I'm so broke. I can't even afford to pay attention to you right now. I'm that broke. I want to give. I don't. And let me just say this. I get it. But there's got to be a starting place somewhere in some proportion of generosity. There's just got to be a starting place. All studies show that if you don't actually learn to be generous when you have little, you actually won't be any more generous when you have a lot. Almost every study out there shows that the higher wage you earn, you tend to stay at the same level of giving. And so this is a muscle, a discipleship muscle 
that by God's grace, we can learn to stretch now, just starting with something, two bucks here and there, just being able to give and to be able to bless others or thinking of creative ways to bless those around us with the resources that we've been given. And so we start somewhere there. Some of us, though, it's not an issue of, of, uh, of treasures. For some of us, it comes to the next area of generosity. And that's an area that we actually have, all have the same amount of. We may not have the same amount of treasures, but when it comes to time, we all have the same amount of time. 24 hours in a day, seven days a week. And Paul said this to the Ephesians in Ephesians 5. Therefore, be careful how you live, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. Paul's writing to the church and he's saying, as the church, don't live like you don't know why you're here. You know why we're here. You, you've read the first part of my letter in Ephesians, Paul's saying, that God is in the business of reconciling all things to himself and he's first reconciling the church, Jew and Gentile together, everything we looked at last week. And he is, he's in the business of providing this salvation for people and bringing us into this mission with him to go declare the glory of the gospel to these people. This is why we're on planet earth. This is why we've been redeemed. So don't live in a way that would be counter to that, that might communicate to the rest of the world that you don't know why you're here. No, we know why we're here, so let's live with wisdom that would be a generous people. And so for time, this becomes an issue. For some of us, it's not the monetary assets that we have the greatest commodity of generosity in, but rather it's the time that we have to give away. Learning to prioritize our calendars in such a way that we can give our time to investing to that which is eternal and blessing the lives of others. Maybe for some, it's just taking time out of your week to pray. Pray for the church. We got a member in our church, a sweet, dear lady who is homebound because of an illness that she has of sensitivities to smells and scents, and she can't ever leave her home. Yet she's a member of this church. She hears about all the things we're doing and so wanted to be here in the days of the tornado and all these other things, but she can't. But you know how she, she serves the church? She commits to intercessory prayer and she prays every day. Even every week we'll send letters to our elders about how she's praying for our leadership and how she's praying for our membership. You got time, leverage it to pray. For some, maybe it's other ways, tangible ways to serve the church or even the community around us. We have set up a table right outside when you leave these doors a connections table that simply has a number of areas in which the church currently has need within. Areas where you could serve. Stop by there on your way out. Just see if there's an opportunity or role. Maybe it's a, an hour a week. Maybe it's 30 minutes a week, whatever it may be. But there's areas where you can leverage time to serve the church. There's also a lot of needs in the community around us that just need time to do it. I would encourage you to email our mobilization team. Jonathan Woodleaf and his whole crew can email at mobilization at northwaychurch.com and there's areas that they can give you of needs in the community and ways in which we can leverage time to serve. In addition to time and treasure though, there's a third area and that's the issue of talents. Peter wrote to the church in 1 Peter 4.10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. In other words, every single believer in here has been given gifts, spiritual gifts, 
If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you've received at least one spiritual gift, which is the, the Spirit uniquely and powerfully taking abilities that you have or supernatural abilities that he gives and supernaturally empowering them in such a way to meet specific needs that we couldn't do on our own. And we get to do this for the, the building up of one another. And so you've got gifts. For some of you, it's the spiritual gift of teaching that you can use to encourage the body. Others, it's the gift of evangelism. It's the gift of mercy towards one. Some, it's prophetic gifting. The Lord's given you uh, the gift of faith, especially towards healing, to pray and lead folks into healing. There's others that have been given words of knowledge where you can be given those by the Spirit to go encourage others. Whatever it may be, leverage those gifts. You go, how do I know what my gift is? Let me just give you a real unfun answer. Use it. That's how you know what it is. Say what? Yeah, exactly that. It's people that go, hey, I think I want to be a missionary. Let me tell you how you know if you're a missionary. Go be one. Go be one. Go serve and then come back and tell me if that's where you're supposed to be at. In the same way that your spiritual gift, just start using. Go teach. Go share your faith. Listen to what the Lord may have to say. Act out on it and you'll begin to see the Holy Spirit begin to fill you in such a way to be a blessing to others. For some of you, it's not even spiritual gifts. There's just personalities he's given you. Man, I know some people in here, you can make friends with a wall. You're that, you are that personality gifted. Like you've made four friends when you came in here today. This wall and that wall and that wall. You have this opportunity to do that. What if you could leverage that contagious personality and leverage it towards reaching people with the gospel of Jesus Christ? It's beautiful to use this for one another. There are others in here, you've got vocational skills that you can help be a blessing to others, whether it's in accounting or, or doing taxes for somebody, or maybe it's, it's uh, leveraging money that you've been able to generate for nonprofits and church plants, whatever it may be, give it away. Rather than hoarding it for your own kingdom, use it to build up Christ's kingdom. And I'd say one last thing though, when it comes to all these talents, these are great opportunities to do some introspection and inventory. Maybe it's in your C3 group, in uh, your gospel community where some accountability on these areas of how am I stewarding my time, treasures, and talents. For others, it's an opportunity to really go, what are the barriers that are preventing me from being generous? Can I just be straight? One of the biggest barriers, first of all, the central barrier in all these is gonna be sin. A selfish and prideful heart that simply wants to hoard and take rather than receiving the grace that we've been given and go give it away. And where that exists, we need to repent of that, ask the Lord to uproot that in us that we might be more yielded in generosity. But tangibly speaking, can I tell you, there's one major barrier that's gonna prevent a lot of us from being able to be generous, especially with our treasures. And that's the issue of debt. Debt is one of the biggest areas that's gonna shackle us. In fact, the definition, biblical definition of debt is to be enslaved to a lender. They own you now. You're not free to go give these resources over here because you're in bondage to the lender. And I'm speaking this from experience. I spent two thirds of my marriage shackled in debt. We tried to be faithful in giving, but there was so much more we wanted to do and couldn't do. Two thirds of my marriage shackled in debt. And you know how it all started? It started when I was in college and I went into the University Union Building at North Texas, the Student Union Building, Somebody had a table set up with a bunch of t-shirts that said, hey, if you'll just fill out a credit card, you'll get a free t-shirt. And I'm like, wow, how'd you know I've been wearing this shirt for the last three weeks and I need a new one? That is so nice of you. Yes, I'll fill that out. And it comes, by the way, with about 28% APR that you're gonna be paying on those purchases every month for the rest of your life. 
And so I apply and I get this credit card. And sure enough, I'm like, wow, I've got all this liquid money now that's invisible. And I can go buy food and all kinds of stuff and go shopping. And ultimately it culminated when I was in my fraternity and we had a formal that was coming up that was in New Orleans. And I wanted to go to this formal. I started dating a girl right before I went to this formal. And I could not pay for this formal. So I went and took out another credit card, got me a nice $1,500, $2,000 limit, went for two days in New Orleans, maxed out the entire card, only to fly back, and we break up. And now all of a sudden I've got this $1,500, $2,000 credit card bill that I'm going to be paying minimum payments on for the next several years in interest. And you want to make it even crazier? Eventually I would meet my wife, marry her, I started seminary. My wife was my sugar mama. She was working as a, in Ponder Elementary uh, School as a teacher, earning a swank 24 grand a year. And she was my sugar mama, paying off my ex-girlfriend's credit card bill that I racked up when I was in New Orleans. Let me tell you what's a fun conversation around the Sumlin household. My wife, she can get whatever she wants because every time something comes up, she's like, yeah, you remember that time when I paid off your ex-girlfriend's credit card bill? Yeah, that was me. Debt shackled me, y'all. I was a slave to the lender. But I gotta tell you, one of the greatest days in my life, next to my salvation, my wife, and my kids, one of the greatest days in my life was 2009 when I paid my last credit card payment. All the tens of thousands of dollars that we had paid off, done. And from that point, by God's grace, I have not been in debt since outside of a mortgage on our house. There's just the freedom to now all of a sudden not be a slave to the lender and to be able to go give that away to those who are in need. And so if you are in financial straits right now, I want you to go, there's no shame here, but we can help one another. We've got one of our deacons named Kevin Tinkle who happens to specialize in the area of finances. And part of his being a deacon is that he wants to help the church, those members who are in need of financial help. Maybe it's to figure out how to financially plan for your future or get out of debt so you can be freed up to be more generous. And so I wanna encourage you, email him at ktinkle at northwaychurch.com. He'd be happy to meet with you, walk with you, pull some other folks in the church together who specialize in the areas to serve the body so that we can be as generous as we can possibly be in the days ahead. So I'd encourage you in that. Take some time to discern the other areas as well of barriers. Maybe with time, it's laziness or even overcommitment. Overcommitment to a lot of things that really don't ultimately matter. And maybe what it looks like to reduce your schedule a bit so there's margin, so you're actually free to be interrupted so that you can meet the needs of other people as they arise versus always just saying, sorry, too busy. Maybe in terms of talents, it's just, it's better understanding what your talents are. And I would just, again, encourage you, stop by our connections table, email our mobilization team. We've got resources coming up where I realize 99% of you aren't in the role that I'm in. You're out in the workforce, in the, in the marketplace, in the community. We're going to have a faith and work seminar coming up on May 16th. You'll hear more about that. But we want to begin actively training what it means to leverage where you're already at as your mission field to be as generous as possible. But church, this is who we've been called to be. This is the value of Northway Church. One of them is generosity. Not one that's coerced by guilt, but is compelled by grace. 
a people who understand what Christ has done for us and who love the unspeakable privilege that we get to take our time, treasures, and talents and go generously give them away to serve the needs of those around us and bring glory to God. I don't know about you, that's the kind of church I want to be a part of. Amen? Well, let's pray to that end. Father, just confess our need for you. I just confess again personally that this is, this is an issue of my own heart, my own flesh, my own sin within me that values consumerism, especially here in Dallas where it's so easy just to adopt the values of the city around me. And God, I want to confess that. I want to ask for myself and any others in this room that you would help us to repent of that selfishness. That God, you might help us sit under the fountain of your grace to realize what we've been given in Jesus Christ. And then out of that grace, God, by your spirit, compel us, free us to be the most generous people on earth because of the generosity that we've received in Christ. We pray this for your glory and certainly for the good of those around us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.